Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. You can open your Bibles now to the book of Genesis, please. Genesis chapter 21. I think it's on page 9 of the paperback Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There's a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you can take that Bible home with you if you would like. Genesis 21. It is our Christmas service, but we are going to stay in the book of Genesis. Um, I'm not getting anything on the screens here. There we go. All right, thank you, Dan. Um, <clears throat> something very remarkable happened back in September of 2019. Um, a woman named Magayama Yaramati, hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, gave birth. And what is so remarkable about this particular woman giving birth is that she was 74 years old. Uh, this woman from southern India. I guess what's even additionally remarkable is she didn't give birth to just one baby, but twins at 74 years old and is being reported now as the oldest woman who has given birth. Uh, We, however, who know the scriptures and know what the Bible says, know that there is an exception to that. There is another woman who has given birth older than 74, right? And her name is Sarah, the wife of Abraham who gave birth to a child at the age of 90. Now we have been waiting for a long time here at New Life for this birth to come about as we have been going through this sermon series on the life of Abraham. We started back on August 15th and I think just about every single sermon I've preached has probably mentioned something about this promised child coming. Um, But we're asking when is it going to happen? Where is this child? We've been waiting for four months. Imagine, though, Abraham and Sarah, who have been waiting for this child for 25 years. That's how long it's taken, and today is the day. The day has arrived, and this miraculous birth comes forth, and Sarah gives birth at the age of 90. Uh, This is our Christmas service here at New Life, and There are some very interesting and very clear and obvious parallels between the birth of Isaac to Sarah and the birth of Jesus to Mary. And that's what we're going to look at today, how this story in chapter 21 points us to the birth of Jesus, which is what we're celebrating, of course, at Christmas. And both of these stories uh, tell us a lot of things about God, but one thing that we learn from this is that sometimes what seems impossible can actually come true. The impossible can come true. And our attitude as people who believe in the God of this Bible, believers in the gospel, our attitude overall should not be one of having a bleak and gloomy outlook on the world in the future, but we should be people who are joyful and hopeful because God does the impossible. And it's true for us, and we're going to see how that's the case here. Uh, in these stories. So if you're able to stand, please do so. I'm going to read Genesis 21, just verses 1 through 7. Genesis 21, 1 through 7. 
<clears throat> now these, whoops, excuse me, I'm in Exodus. <laughs> All right, Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Holy Spirit, would you please come, open our eyes, open our hearts. Let us behold wonderful things in your word and fill us with joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so, we're going to consider just two things here. Just looking at this uh, from the perspective of Genesis 21, we'll turn over here in a little bit to Matthew 1 and see what is told to us there. But uh, first of all, let's consider Sarah's miraculous birth of Isaac. So this whole story, of course, has been a very long journey for Abraham and Sarah. <clears throat> um, this story really begins all the way back in the very end of chapter 11. That's when Abraham, called Abram at the time, is introduced to us. And we also are introduced to Sarai at the time. She's Sarah now. Her name has been changed. She used to be Sarai. And back in chapter 11, verse 30, we read kind of an ominous forbearing of what's about to happen. It says, Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Now Sarai was barren, and she had no child. And that's just kind of laying the groundwork for what has been coming over the ensuing chapters that we've been studying here over the last four months. And what we've seen is that God, as I've already mentioned, has just been repeatedly coming to Abraham and Sarah with these promises. So this is the end of chapter 11, but in chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Implied is that there are going to be descendants, Abraham, who are going to come from you and there's going to be a nation that comes from your descendants. And yet, Sarah is barren. She has no child. Chapter 13 comes. God returns and says to Abraham again, you're going to have offspring, Abraham. There are going to be as many as the dust of the earth, God says. But Sarah is barren. She's had no children, and yet God's making this promise. And chapter 15 comes along, and God changes the analogy a little bit, and he says, you're going to have offspring that are as many as the stars in the sky. And yet still, Sarah is barren. Chapter 17, God comes again to Abraham and Sarah and says to them, you're going to have a son, Abraham. And then he gets a little more specific this time, and he says, this son is going to come through Sarah. God had never named Sarah necessarily as the mother to, to this point, but here he does. It's not going to be a child through Hagar, which is what we saw in chapter 16. It's going to be a child through Sarah. Then chapter 18 comes, and there's another announcement. God comes and says, Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a child. This time he specifies the time. It's going to be the same time next year. So God gets a little more specific in all of his promises, but through all of this time, Sarah is barren. Sarah has no children. There's no report that she's going to be 
pregnant. They're trying, but it's not happening. Hagar, she had a child. Abraham and Sarah observed that, but Sarah didn't have a child. I'm sure there's a number of servants in Abraham's household. We know that. He's very wealthy, lots of servants. I'm sure there are other servants who are having children, but not Sarah. You can imagine friends and family of Abraham and Sarah as they're going about their business over the course of 25 years. I'm sure they're hearing over and over again about others who are having children, but not Sarah. And you just have to wonder how often did it occur when Abraham and Sarah were having dinner or going to bed at night and they started to talk about this promise and they started to ask things like, has God forgotten us? Is God a liar? Does God really care for us? Why would God, a loving God, make a promise like this and not fulfill it? Did God find somebody else he liked better? Is God changing his redemptive plan? We've not been good enough, so he's going to do it through somebody else. Is God even there? Maybe God doesn't exist. I mean, I wonder if they thought those things, if they talked about those things. Fact is, a lot of time has gone by. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And you wonder, was that Abraham and Sarah's experience? They just felt sick, so hopeful, so much anticipation, so much excitement, but just one crushing disappointment after another. 25 years. Well, here in chapter 21, we have the answer to all those questions that perhaps Abraham and Sarah were answering. We learn a lot of things about God as we look at this passage in chapter 21. I want to show you three things that come out of this. First of all, God is faithful. God is faithful. Abraham and Sarah probably doubted this over and over again, <clears throat> but here we see he is a faithful God. Look at verses 1 and 2, and you'll see at least three emphases on what God said. Look at this. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, going back to 1814, which is where that was specified. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. <clears throat> Verse 2, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Three times we have a reference to God's prior word, him speaking, his promises. And what Moses, the writer of Genesis, wants us to see is that God is faithful to his word. God said these things and these things happened. In fact, the reason these things happened is because God always does what he says he will do. He never fails to fulfill his word. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law from the word until all is accomplished. Now, it didn't happen on Abraham and Sarah's timetable. That's true. There's a Puritan named William Gurnall who says, when we think that God has forgotten us, when promises don't come true as we wish, what we have actually forgotten is how bold it is of us to expect that God's going to do his work on our timetable. This is God's plan. These are God's promises. These are God's words. He has the right to fulfill them in accordance with his timing, and that's what is happening here. 
But what I want you to see here is that God is faithful to his word. If he has promised it, it's going to happen. That's what it says in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Our faithlessness does not interrupt his our faithlessness does not interrupt his faithfulness because he cannot deny himself. He's true to his word. He's reliable. He's dependable. When you read the Bible and you read promises that come out of the scriptures, you can count on those. I can't tell you when they're going to be fulfilled, but they will be because God is faithful. But then we also see here that God is powerful. God is powerful. The circumstances are very clear here in the beginning of chapter 21. Um, Look at verse 2. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. Move down to verse 5. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born. And we even go down to verse 7, and we see that Sarah, after giving birth to Isaac, exclaims, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? In other words, Sarah seems to be saying, who would have thought this would have ever happened? Even though God had promised it over and over again, we've seen that Abraham believed the promise. It seems here that maybe Sarah never really did. Who would have thought this ever would have happened? But God is powerful. And he exceeds our expectations. He does things that we never expect that he could possibly do. Paul says later in the book of Romans that Abraham's body was as good as dead. (laughs) And yet here we have a baby being born to Abraham and Sarah. There's a little difference between this and the birth that I mentioned at the start of the sermon. The woman from southern India actually gave birth through in vitro fertilization. So she was not impregnated by a man So making chapter 21 even more extraordinary is the fact that it's a 100-year-old man who impregnated Sarah, who was 90 years old at the time. Bottom line, friends, is this is a miracle. That's why I'm saying the miraculous birth of Isaac, a 100-year-old man, a 90-year-old woman who worship a powerful God for whom nothing is impossible. Now, you might say, do we really believe in miracles these days? I mean, we're educated, enlightened, modern people. Do we really believe in miracles? Well, if you're a believer in the Bible, if you're a believer in in the creator of the universe, this should be no problem for you whatsoever. Because if God supernaturally created the world, certainly he can supernaturally intervene in the world whenever he wants. And that's what he's doing here in chapter 21. We don't expect to see miracles every day. No. If miracles happened every day, that would make them ordinary. (laughs) Miracles are extraordinary. They don't happen very often, but they can happen. They have happened. They do happen, and that's what's happening here in chapter 21. We're seeing the power of God displayed in the birth of Isaac. A guy named J. Gresham Machen said, the Bible without the miracles would be far easier to believe. Yeah, that's true, but the trouble is, would it be worth believing? I mean, do you really want a religion that offers you no hope of any kind of power from the outside coming in? That's the kind of God you want to worship? What kind of hope does it have if we're left to ourselves in the universe? That's a hopeless way of living, and yet here we see that God is powerful and he intervenes as he did for Abraham and Sarah. The last thing here we see is that God is gracious. God is so gracious. Let's not forget that chapter 21 follows chapter 20. 
And we saw what happened last week in chapter 20. Abraham came up with this lie, this fib, about Sarah being his wife, conveniently ignoring, about Sarah being his sister, conveniently ignoring that Sarah was his wife. And we learned that that wasn't the first time that that happened, right? Back in chapter 12, Abraham did the same thing. And so here we have God making these promises to Abraham, and here we have Abraham continually messing up, committing one sin, being rebuked for it, and then going back and committing it again. Remember last week we talked about these besetting sins that we struggle with, these things that just keep coming back and hounding us? Abraham had the same problem. You can imagine that perhaps God would come to Abraham and say, Abraham, I told you not to lie, and you did it again, so you're going to wait another 25 years. I'm going to penalize you. I'm going to make it hard on you. You're not behaving, Abraham, so you're going to wait longer. That's what, the way we've been treated, maybe, by parents and bosses and authority figures over us. That's just not the God that's presented to us here on the pages of the Scripture. He promised. God promised. Isaac's going to be born same time next year. And God fulfilled his promise. Abraham's sin did not interfere, did not undo, did not turn upside down the gracious, faithful promise of God. God is gracious. And we see that here in chapter 21. Well, how does all this end? Verse 6, Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. This is not the laughter of unbelief and the laughter of cynicism that we have talked about before. This is the laughter of joy. This is the laughter of hope fulfilled. The proverb that I mentioned earlier, hope deferred makes the heart sick. The other part of that proverb is desire fulfilled is the tree of life. And here Abraham and Sarah are seeing their desires fulfilled. Their hearts overwhelmed with joy. They're rejoicing and praising God. I never thought it would happen, and it did. Now, friends, I know that many of you have said the same kinds of things, have felt the same kinds of ways as Abraham and Sarah, that many of you have many hopes and longings, and they have been deferred, and your heart feels sick. And I know you've asked the same question. Does God care about me? Has God forgotten about me? Has God lied to me? Is God even there? You've asked those questions. I'm just telling you, friends, there is a day coming, and I don't know when because I don't set God's timetable, but there is a day coming when you are going to laugh with joy, and you're going to look back at the way your heart has been sick, and you're going to say, God was faithful. I can see it here, here, and there. God is powerful. I can see it in the way he did this and did that. And he is gracious. He has treated me during my life not in accordance with what my sins deserve. And you're going to laugh, friends. You might not be laughing now. You don't have it in your heart to laugh right now. It's understandable. But the day is coming when you will laugh, like Sarah did. And I say this because this story we're reading about here in Genesis 21 is not the end of the story. There is actually an even greater birth that comes later, and that's what we're going to look at now. And if you want to, you can <coughs> flip in your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 20, 
5. This was our call to worship this morning. Matthew chapter 1. Sarah's birth of Isaac, that's not the end of the story. The Bible continues on. And now we have another birth narrative. Uh, This is one of two birth narratives in the scriptures regarding the birth of Jesus. Luke chapter 1 also gives us um, an account of Jesus' birth. But uh, the similarities are are pretty striking here. Um, The birth of Jesus and the birth of Isaac. So the second point here is Mary's miraculous birth of Jesus. In both cases, we have a couple, Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament. Now we got Mary and Joseph here in Matthew. Uh, in both cases, we have angels on the scene, right? Remember the visitors who came in chapter 18? We learned that those were angels accompanying God, speaking to Abraham and Sarah. In both cases, we have another promise, and the promise is the birth of a child. And in both cases, we even have a specific direction to name the child a particular name. Isaac, that name given, and the name Jesus being given to the Christ child. Luke chapter 1 tells us Jesus will be his name. His name will be great. He'll be the son of the most high, and his kingdom will have no end. And so we have these two birth accounts. And you know what? From the Matthew 1 account, we learn three things also about God and they're the same three things. We see God is faithful. God is faithful in the birth of the Christ child. And look at verse 22 and 23, as you look at Matthew 1, and we see it says, all this took place, referring to the birth of Jesus, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So the birth of Jesus was a fulfillment of a promise made about a thousand years earlier by this prophet Isaiah. But friends, do you know that this is not the first time that a promise was made about the birth of a Messiah? Isaiah was not the first one to promise that. If you've been with us through the book of Genesis, you'll know that that promise goes all the way back to chapter 3, verse 15, in the Garden of Eden, when a promise was made to the woman that a descendant was going to come from her who was going to crush the head of the serpent. A Messiah was going to come. That was announced in the Garden of Eden. That's as far back as we can possibly remember in the history of human civilization. That's where the promise started. Michael Williams says this, The promise that comes to fulfillment in Christ's resurrection and in Christ's birth, we might say as well, is first sounded in the Garden of Eden. The expectation of the coming Redeemer is proclaimed in the mother promise of Genesis 3.15. This is why we sing, O little town of Bethlehem, that, that hymn, we say, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The hopes and fears of all the years much more time than four months, much more time than 25 years. We're talking multiple centuries that this promise has been waiting for fulfillment, and there it is in the birth story of Jesus, Matthew chapter 1. God is faithful to send a redeemer. But we also see that God is powerful, just like with the birth of Isaac. God is powerful. Certainly it's miraculous that a woman gave birth through the agency of a 100-year-old man, but how much more miraculous is it when a woman gives birth when there's no man involved at all? 
That's what we're talking about in the birth of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18 here in chapter 1 of Matthew. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. There was no sexual relation between them. Yet she was found to be with child. So how did that happen? From the Holy Spirit. End of verse 18, from the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, same thing. It says, uh, the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, you might be saying, well, if a 74-year-old woman can give birth, I guess I can accept that a 90-year-old woman can give birth, but a virgin giving birth? That's a little much. But friends, what are we thinking about? The power of God. Is anything too hard for God? That's what God said to Abraham and Sarah when he told them that they were going to have a birth, uh, give birth to a child, and they laughed in their unbelief, and God said, is anything too hard? That's the exact same thing that the angel says to Mary and Joseph. Is anything too hard for God? Yes, what we're saying, and this is central to our beliefs as Christians, that Jesus was born to a woman who had no sexual relations with a man. A virgin birth. Now, why is that important? You might say, I like this stuff about having my sins forgiven, I like this stuff about going to heaven, but these crazy things like a virgin birth, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. Why is this important? Well, here's the reason why. We, we could give a number of reasons. I'll give just one. But what's central to our faith as Christians is that we believe Jesus, the Messiah, is God and man at the same time, as our uh, confession catechism reading earlier said. I guess it was a confession reading. God and man at the same time. You can imagine if we thought about Jesus' birth and there was no human parent involved, we very well might ask, how can he be a man? How can he be a man? He wasn't born to a human being. But if Jesus was born to two human parents, we might reasonably ask, how can he be God? God wasn't involved. If there's two human parents, he's a man and not God. If there's no human parent involved at all, he's man and not God. Did I say that right? If there's not a human parent, we don't know that he's man. If there's not divine involvement, we don't know that he's God. But, but he's, he's both. That's what is absolutely essential. We're not saying that God is two people, that Jesus is two people. We're saying that Jesus is one person, two natures, divine and human, the divine word made flesh. That's what the incarnation is all about. St. Anselm says this. This is why it's so central to the gospel. The debt that we have to pay to God was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it so that the same person must be both man and God. We need a Savior who stands in our place, represents us as a human race, a man. But we need someone who's able to pay the debt that we owe. And no mere man can do that. Only God can. And so in Jesus we have a fully sufficient Savior the God-man, and that requires a virgin birth, which is only made possible by the power 
of God. So God is powerful, and we see that here in Matthew 1. And then lastly, we see that God is gracious. God is gracious. There is a similarity here in the names that are given. God tells Abraham and Sarah that Sarah will be given um, the name to Isaac, Isaac meaning laughter. So names in this culture had much more significance then than they do now. We just saw Sarah laughing at the end of the passage. That's what Isaac means, laughter. So his name is symbolic of what's going on. Well, when God told Mary that she was going to give birth to Jesus, there's significance to that name as well. Because Jesus is the Greek form of the name Joshua. And Joshua in the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures means salvation. Jesus has come for our salvation, which is what we see in verse 21. Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. How is this going to happen? Well, that human nature that I just told you about that Jesus took on in his birth, he took on for the specific purpose of laying it down, sacrificing his body on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and for mine. As 1 Peter tells us, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. Do you see why it's so important that we have a Savior who's God and man? God takes on this human flesh, born into this world on the first Christmas day, but born for a specific purpose, and that is to die out of love for you and for me to give up his life so that we can be saved. That's Christmas, friends. That's what Christmas is about. So friends, let me ask you, what is it that you're struggling to believe in? What is it that you're struggling to believe in now? What is it that makes you gloomy? What is it that gives you the blues? What is it that makes you bleak? What is it that casts a negative outlook on your life? You don't trust God to provide, maybe. You don't trust that God is good. You don't trust maybe in his promise that he'll never forsake you. You don't trust that maybe he'll vindicate you one day. You don't trust maybe that he is going to raise you up on the last day so that you will live forever with him. What is it that makes you hopeless? What is it that makes you sad? Friends, let me just point your attention to these two wonderful stories. Sarah giving birth to Isaac Mary giving birth to Jesus, showing us that God is faithful, always faithful, always doing what he says he will do, that he is powerful, that nothing is too hard for him, and that he is so gracious that he would save a sinner like you and like me. Jesus, the one born that men no more may die so that God and sinners can be reconciled. That's Christmas And we're going to come and meet Jesus in a more intimate way at the table now. But let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for coming for us. We thank you for entering our world to rescue us. And we thank you, Lord, that often what we think is impossible comes true by your faithfulness, power, and grace. Oh, God, you are worthy of our worship. And we pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen.